Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, our text this morning will be verses 12 to 15. Another wonderful passage of scripture for us to dive into this morning. One, of course, that is in connection with all that Jesus has said here previously about comforting his disciples, announcing his departure, and yet consoling them as well, that it's needful that he goes. He promises that The place in which he goes, he's preparing the way that they will come later. He he expounds for them even more so about his unity with the Father and the oneness with the Father. We talked a little bit about that as well. That those who have seen Jesus have seen the Father, as he says, because he and the Father are united perfectly and in agreement with everything. That the same characteristics that are found in Christ, the same attributes that are found in Christ, are found in the Father. And therefore, the very same things that you see in Jesus, His words and His actions, this is manifesting the Father, demonstrating the Father to the world. That we can come to know Him even more intimately through the fullest revelation of God, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. And it seems as if He took, well, you see some disappointment, I'll say this. When Philip says to him, Lord, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. If you can show us the Father, then it is enough for us, even though we are disheartened that you're leaving. And that's when, of course, Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen him. You've seen the Father. We have to understand that when it comes to the triune nature of God, they're not at odds in anything. There is no contrasting between them. They are one. They're, you're united in everything. United in purpose, united in, in everything that was, that was ever said or done. They share the same essence and substance. The Son has the same essence and the substance as the Father to the fullest, as well as the Holy Spirit to the fullest, as the Father and the Son both do. They are three persons, co-equal, co-existent from all eternity, united in everything. Therefore, to know Christ is to know the Father. And actually, to know Christ is to know the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we're not really emphasizing much as far as the character of the Holy Spirit or the attributes of the Holy Spirit. But to know Christ is to know the Holy Spirit too. And actually, Jesus is going to announce here in the the next set of verses of, of, of the coming of the Spirit of God. But here in our text this morning... He says some very profound things, things that are often take, uh, taken out of context, things that are emphasized to be what they are not in all actuality. And what I mean by that is, is if we spend any time studying some of the charismatic teachers, some of the charismatic proponents, especially some of those in the extreme uh, area, then we see them abusing many of these passages of Scripture that we read of here in our text today. That if we ask the ask, ask Christ for anything, then he gives it to us. And so the word of faith idea is, is to, to speak it. You have the power of speech that you can just speak it and it will occur. We're told here to pray in, in the name of Jesus and he's, he'll grant whatever. It is taken as well to, for, uh, for this understanding that our prayer to the Lord is giving him permission to act on earth. That's a gross, gross misunderstanding. We're told here that all believers will do greater works than that which Jesus himself had done while here on earth. That's taken many times to say that we should be doing the same things that Jesus did in the sense of his supernatural, miraculous things that he had accomplished. Manifesting his deity if you think back of some of the things that he did, I mean, he turns water into wine, he heals the nobleman's son, he feeds 5,000 people 
actually more than 5,000 people, 5,000 just counting the men, not counting the women and the children. Some estimate up to maybe 15,000, but he feeds them miraculously with just a small amount of food. He heals all kinds of diseases. He heals a lame man after 38 years of being lame. He can give sight to the blind. He can raise a man from the dead after being dead four days. And Jesus says, greater works than these you will do. And so this is taken to mean that we should be doing these very same things as well. And if we don't do them, then perhaps we just don't have enough faith in order to pull it off. That in itself is also a very gross misunderstanding of what our Lord is saying here. There are some amazing things to be sure, because he does say this. He does say that greater works than these you will do. And he's not just speaking to the apostles. The language that he's using is universally of all believers. So how can that be? What greater works can believers do that Christ didn't do? What things will he grant to us when we ask him in prayer? He actually says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What does that mean? Are we to infer from that exactly what prosperity gospel teachers tell us? That we ought to be praying maybe for money. Praying for promotions and praying for more material possessions. You know, it's a very interesting thing that everything, and you've heard this said by many theologians, that everything that is offered in the prosperity gospel is exactly everything that Satan offers. And yet, whenever you attach Christ's name to it, somehow it becomes honorable. And that's just not so. How are we to live before Him? What things are we to do to demonstrate our love for Him? He's going to say in this passage of Scripture, If you love me, keep my commandments. Well, isn't that legalism? That's legalism, isn't it? Well, actually, no, it isn't. Legalism is coming up with all sets, all new sets of ideas and laws that we must keep in order to gain favor with the Lord. We do these things because of our favor with the Lord. There's the difference. But the very thing that believers are to do is to live in obedience. And that's what Jesus is going to emphasize here. We have this idea today as well, and there's so many various ideas. I mean, you go to any passage of Scripture, there's always going to be an opposite of, of somewhere. And so we have here that Jesus is commanding believers to, to follow in his footsteps, to obey his commands. Many be believers will say, well, what are we then to do? Because we don't adhere to the Old Testament law. We don't look to the law. We're not under law. We're under grace. We heard that a lot. From the very beginning, it's always been grace. But we have a belief called antinomianism. Big, long, $5 word, antinomianism, which means against the law. That believers, once they become converted, can live however they choose because they have prayed the prayer or signed the card. And that is not at all uh, following in the footsteps of our Lord or following in the commands of Scripture or demonstrating the characteristics of what believers should be. So there's a lot packed into this passage of Scripture here that we need to give our attention to that we can understand rightly. Because when we do understand this rightly, then there are some amazing things to consider of what blessings have been granted to you for you to carry out in the name of our Lord. When you pray, what things does He grant to you? Because He says He will. What things are those? It's pretty amazing when we begin to understand this rightly. So let's look at this passage together. Here in John chapter 14, we'll begin in verse 12 and read through verse 15. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Word of God. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Father, we've come to honor you this day. We pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would move mightily within our hearts, applying this passage to our hearts that we can understand it even more. That we would grow in our adoration of you to a greater degree to see you in all your majesty and glory and to delight in the things that you have called us to do and the things that we have a privilege of taking part in doing. Father, be glorified in us this day, your people. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. Again, some pretty profound things that Jesus says here. But we need to understand these, these things that he's saying in conjunction with what he has said already. After he explains to them in verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. That's going to be the key. To understanding what it is that Jesus is saying to us. Believe because of the works themselves. He goes in thereafter to say these words that are universal of all believers. Of doing the work of Christ. Again, but it is in conjunction with what he has said previously. And we we have that understanding of what Jesus has said previously. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. That the works that Jesus was doing was to demonstrate the authenticity of who he claimed to be. It was a means of of cultivating belief within people. And actually, if you look at the whole Gospel of John, the very thing that John says is that these things are written that you may believe. That's what he says in 1 John 2. These things are written that you may have eternal life. These things that are written of Jesus' words, of Jesus' works, of everything that He said, everything that He did, every action that He performed, every attitude that He had was to manifest the glory of His Father. And it was the Father doing the works in Him. His works were the Father's works. His words were the Father's words. And He appeals to them because they still don't quite understand. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works. And then he begins to say to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And again, this is universal to all believers. This isn't just speaking of the apostles because often we will look at this and we will say, Okay, well maybe he's talking to the apostles because the apostles had the supernatural gifts of the Spirit of God. They were ones that had healed diseases and healed the lame man and things that they did in the book of Acts. Maybe he's just talking about the apostles, which in one sense would, <clears throat> would make sense, considering what the writer of Hebrews said. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, he says in verse 1, beginning of verse 1, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Right here. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own power. So yes, the apostles had those supernatural gifts to accompany them to verify the message that they were declaring. And that was the way it was always within the Old Testament as well, that whenever a prophet would come on the scene, 
that God accompanied them with signs and miracles to verify exactly what they were saying being from God. So yes, the apostles did have those supernatural uh, gifts of the Spirit of God. But the language here is not just speaking of them. He says, he who believes in me. And he's used that language earlier in John's gospel. In chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He says it again in chapter 7, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He says it again in chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And the language of all that he says there, of from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, of being resurrected and living again, all of that is universally spoken of by all, to all believers. All believers receive those gifts, those privileges, those blessings by the Lord. And he's using that again here in chapter 14, speaking of the works that we will do. And he actually says this, the works that... Uh, excuse me, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Which is a very interesting thing. He first says, the works that he's done, we will do also. Because it's speaking universally of all believers. But what work is he speaking of? Again, it's not just toward the apostles, but believers in the past. To us believers today, those not yet converted... Those who believe in him will do the works that Jesus is doing precisely as he will actually tie into it because he goes to the Father. So what works are we talking about? The ones mentioned there at the beginning of turning water into wine. Is that the works that we are to do? Healing people who can't walk? Cleansing lepers? Feeding multitudes of people with a small amount of food, raising the dead. What is in view here? Now, for the charismatic extremes, they will look at that and say, absolutely. Some have made very bold claims of raising the dead and performing healings. One such man is Bill Johnson from Bethel Church in Redding, California. These are things that believers are to be doing, apparently, that are given universally to all. Even if you were to take that view and you look back at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 11, and then towards the end of the chapter, not everybody has the same gifts. So no, not all believers would do that anyway if those gifts were still in operation. So what's he saying there? And he not only says, we'll do those works that he's doing, he says, but greater works. Greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Now, how can we top what Jesus has done? The things that Jesus did was unique. Unique in all redemptive history. No one had ever raised a man from the dead after being dead four days. No one had ever healed a lame man after years and years and years of him unable to walk. No one has ever opened the eyes of the blind after being blind since birth. So what's in view? Well, these gifts being greater, they're not more spectacular gifts. They're not more supernatural gift. Some would say maybe it's speaking of the missionary success of the apostles and the church, that the missionary endeavors of, of the apostles... And those that came after were certainly greater than Christ. Christ was sent to the house of the lost sheep of Israel. He confined himself to Israel in the preaching of the gospel. And so through the apostles, yes, the gospel went out further, went out to the nations. And so there was indeed more area that was covered. But ultimately, if we just look at this in a very simple terms... 
What was it that Jesus did? What was the purpose of his works? What was the purpose of the things that he said? And if we just take that simple question and begin to look back at the things that we've learned already, what did he do? He was making known the Father to the world. That's what his works were doing. That's what his words were doing. Making known the Father. His works and his words were demonstrating him to be the awaited Messiah. Pointing to him to be the one fulfilling the scripture. But during his, but you have to understand the contrast here a little bit. That during his, his earthly time here, his physical time here, his words and his works were, were veiled somewhat. That even those that were closest to him didn't fully understand some of the things he says or even some of the things that he did as demonstrated there in the earlier part of chapter 14. So those things were veiled in some sense. His identity was veiled to an extent, his purpose, until after the work of redemption was completed. And then after the work of redemption being completed... And these things were enhanced even more so. One writer says this, The signs and works Jesus performed during his ministry could not fully accomplish their true end until after Jesus had risen from the dead and been exalted. Only at that point could they be seen for what they were. By contrast, the works believers are given to do through the power of the eschatological spirit after Jesus' glorification will be set in the framework of Jesus' death and triumph and will therefore more immediately and truly reveal the Son. Thus greater things is constrained by salvation historical realities. In consequence, many more converts will be gathered into the Messianic community than were drawn during Jesus' ministry. End quote. So what's he saying? He's saying that the things that Jesus said and did were only understood in a limited sense while he was still here on earth, while he was still performing the miracles and preaching and all of that, until after his death and his resurrection and his exaltation. When these things that he had said previously were enhanced even more so to point to him as the glorious Son of God and to verify, to vindicate him to be who he claimed to be. Now we go out... Not just with, with Christ physically present with us on earth and pointing to Him and say, he's, he's the Son of God, He's the One. But now that He has ascended and He's risen from the dead, He's ascended and He sits at the right hand of the Father. Now the things that we say and the things that we preach and the, the things that we teach others about the, the character of God are grounded in this reality of His completed work. Whereas before, that wasn't the case. Because He wasn't exalted yet. He hadn't risen from the dead yet. Now that He has ascended on high, the greater works that the believers do, the people of God do, is being able to work within that framework of His resurrection and His exaltation. You know, it's interesting that in line with that, in Matthew chapter 11, this is what Jesus says about John the Baptist. He says in verse 11. Listen to what he says. Matthew 11, verse 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Let me read that again. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He's only second to Christ. But he goes on to say this, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why is that? How is it that John the Baptist can be the greatest that ever existed, only second to Christ himself, and yet the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist? How is that? John the Baptist only operated within the framework of Christ's first coming and him physically being here on earth. Not in his work of redemption, not in his resurrection, 
Not in his exaltation, sitting at the right hand of the Father. John the Baptist didn't get to uh, see those things while he was still here. He didn't get to preach the exalted risen Christ. He didn't get to point to Christ uh, and say that this is the the fullest revelation of the Father. This is the the greatest demonstration of God's love because this one that has came, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, has indeed taken away the sin of those that the Father has given to Him. The life that we live, the things that we say are all within that framework. Everything that we've been going over in the Gospel of John has been within that framework of Christ's exaltation. And so that's the idea of greater works than these, of revealing the Father, appointing to Christ. The greater is it on this side of the cross than it was beforehand. Because these things were accomplished and now the believers then are able to, to preach the risen Christ. Preach the glorified Christ that died for the sins of the world. And now because of your words, because of your works, those are a means in order to bring others into the covenant community. By preaching the risen Christ. Not in supernatural gifts, not in the supernatural acts that that those that were in the scriptures had done, but through the life that you live manifesting the truth of your profession. The words that you say, the declaration of the gospel itself, and then living it out in your life is a great work that is done within the framework of Christ's redemptive work. There is so much emphasis today on the supernatural gifts and the supernatural gifts somehow manifesting God even greater. And that's not it at all because these things are not what saves people. It's the gospel applied to the heart. It's the words that you speak of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The gospel being the sum total of everything that He is, everything that He done, and everything that He accomplished. These are the things that you declare to the world, and it is this itself that is the power of God and the salvation applied to the heart by the Spirit of God that's bringing people to faith. It is the life that you live that is manifesting the truth of your profession. It's not just trying to be a moral person, but it is speaking those things and then following through with those things. Jesus even tells us that. Matthew 5, Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He says, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He says in Ephesians 2, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The truth of your words are seen in your actions. These are a means that that God has used in order to reach others. It's not about trying to do these supernatural acts or whatever. It is about declaring what God has told you to declare. Being an ambassador for Christ. Declaring the gospel. And then living a life in obedience, which we'll get to here shortly. Showing the truth of your profession. And that's where James comes in. That faith without works is dead being by itself. You say you have faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Works are the manifestation of true faith. Not the cause of true faith, but the demonstration of it. And these works that we do in the lives that we live and the words that we speak are indeed greater Because at this time that Jesus is saying this, He hasn't accomplished redemption for His people. He hasn't taken upon Himself the full wrath of His Father to satisfy the justice of all those that the Father has given to Him. He hasn't demonstrated His power over death and being resurrected from the dead, showing that He is able to grant eternal life to all who come to Him. He hasn't been exalted to the right hand of the Father yet, to take his seat as king, to rule and reign over his people that are on the earth. That happens later. So the greater works that we are privileged to do that are across the board to all believers is by preaching and teaching the resurrected Christ. 
That's it. And living the life that is pleasing to your Lord. We seek after so many other things to try to manifest something to people. Whether it's, it's within the charismatic framework or, or whatever. It's the words of Jesus being declared through you the instrument to others. It's a pretty amazing thing to consider that too is that while Jesus is on the earth, He's performing all these works and all of that, but it's not until He is exalted to the right hand of the Father that He sends the Holy Spirit of God to come in the fullness upon all believers to equip them for the work of ministry. And the things that now occur within the church or that are are accomplished by the people of God are still Him. He's the one still doing it. And now there's no physical restraints on Him. He works through His people to accomplish all things for His glory, to manifest the glory of His Father. That purpose has never changed. That purpose should be our purpose too, to glorify the Father. And how do we do that? How do we manifest those good works? Well, we do it through prayer. He says here, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, what is he talking about? He's just now announcing to the disciples that they're going to do greater works than him because he goes to the Father, because of his... And that's, that's just, again, signifying that he's going through the cross. He's going to be uh, resurrected. He's, he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. Because he goes to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit of God to accomplish these things in the people of God. And then he adds that whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Now, it doesn't all of a sudden shift from everything being done in order to glorify the Father and doing greater works to glorify the Father to all of a sudden becoming something that is a selfish ambition. It doesn't just turn to be a self-centered declaration. Because here we have more clarification of what he's really talking about. The fruitful ministry of the disciples, everything that he's expressing to them is the product of their prayers to the Lord offered in Jesus' name. Christ is the one who grants these requests of whatever they ask. That all that is done and accomplished in this world is done through the prayers of the saints. To the exalted Christ. The nations are invaded with the power of the gospel. This is accomplished by Christ Jesus through the prayers of the saints. This isn't a magic incantation or whatever to all of a sudden, you know, attach Christ's name to something that you really, really want. I really want this new car. I really want a lot of money. I really want to make a name for myself. I really want that whatever. You toss in there whatever you think. Everything that is done is in conjunction with the revealed will of God. Another writer says this, Prayers in His name are prayers that are offered in thorough accord with all that His name stands for. And in recognition that the only approach to God, those who pray enjoy, their only way to God, is Jesus Himself. John really qualifies that as well in 1 John chapter 5. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Actually, let's start in verse 13. The scripture says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. That's the key. If we ask anything according to His will, what are the things that are according to His will? Magnifying the Son? Absolutely. Glorifying the Father? Absolutely. Desiring the salvation of the lost? 
Absolutely. For strength to carry out the things that God has commanded of us? Yes. Because we can only do it within the, within the power of the Spirit of God. Only within the strength of the Spirit of God can we do these things. The boldness to preach the gospel to the lost? The confidence? The ability to make our Lord the first priority in our life? All of that comes through prayer to the Lord, enabling us to do it. Petitioning Him for the Spirit of God to work mightily within our hearts to carry out these things. Otherwise, they cannot be done. We can't do them in our own strength. And so the things, and there's more, of course, having to do with our sanctification and our growth in Christ and all of those things that are found within the Scriptures, these things we pray for. Because we know that they are part of the revealed, or that they are in accordance with the will of God because they're revealed in the written word of God. And so we pray for these things. We pray for wisdom. How should we live in this world? James says, let him who lacks wisdom ask. There are so many things that we need to be praying for that are in accordance with the word of God. And just because we pray for it once, and here's something else about prayer. Just because we pray for it once, and it doesn't come to pass, or whatever it is that we think, that doesn't mean we stop praying for that very same thing. If we know that it's right before God, we continue to pray for it. That's why he says, ask, seek, and knock. You're asking, and you're, you're seeking after it, and you're knocking down the doors of heaven. And it's a very interesting thing, and one of my favorite passages of Scripture that explains prayer is... Jesus uses the analogy of a man who has been on a long journey. He comes to his friend at night. That friend doesn't have anything for him to eat, so he goes to his neighbor and he knocks on the door and he says, I need three loaves. This friend of mine has come in from a long journey. I need something to feed him with. The friend on the inside says, the door is already closed. I'm not getting up and giving you anything. And Jesus says, because of the man's persistence. And the word actually means his shamelessness. Because of his shamelessness and continuing to knock on the door, the man got up and gave him three loaves that he could give it to his friend. And he uses that as an example of how you and I are to come before him in prayer. We need to be shameless when it comes to our prayers before the Lord and seeking after what we know is in accordance with the written word of God. The very things that that Christ is commanded to bear fruit and to prove to be His disciples and to manifest the goodness of the Father and to glorify the Father. These things we need to be continually praying for and seeking after and to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what He says. Whatever you ask in My name, as He is the only mediator between God and men, that I will do. For this very purpose so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Again, His purpose never changed from the time in which He was on the earth to glorify the Father and and the time that He's in heaven now sitting at the right hand of the Father. The purpose is the same, to glorify the Father. And in fact, it's an amazing thing too when you look in 1 Corinthians 15. After He has put all His enemies under His feet and the kingdom is subjected to Him, then He turns and subjects it to the Father, that the Father may be glorified. That the things that we pray for and the things that we seek after should be with the purpose of glorifying the Lord Jesus and glorifying the Father. These things we pray for. These things we seek after. These things we seek to knock down the doors of heaven. And uh, just as a side note there, back in chapter 11... Verse 12, we read verse 11, but verse 12, listen to what Jesus says there. He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Thomas Watson, the Puritan Thomas Watson, wrote a book called Heaven Taken by Storm. And he had referenced this verse. This verse is really the the theme of his book. And he is demonstrating that that it's not speaking of unregenerate men that are seeking to take the kingdom of heaven. 
because the kingdom of heaven cannot be hindered at all by anything that happens within the kingdom of the world. He says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. And what Thomas Watson is pointing out is that this is, is the attitude and the disposition of all those that are in Christ seeking to take the kingdom. By exerting every part of themselves in order to seek after it or as Paul says to lay hold of that which laid hold of us. To live the, to live the life that delights the Lord and to, to seek after him with all of our energy. And that's the way we ought to be in prayer. Glorifying the Lord. Seeking to glorify Him. Asking for the things that will glorify Him. Asking things that are in accordance with the will of God. That's the qualifier. To do the greater works, we must pray. We must pray in the name of our Lord Jesus to accomplish these, this work of redemption. And the demonstration of our commitment to him. He says in verse 15. Speaking of all these things of doing the greater works of praying in his name and he said he adds this at the end. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, some folks may have a problem with that. Because one of the things that is often expressed is the big long word we were talking about, antinomianism. That there's such a thing as a carnal Christian. <clears throat> this is intertwined, of course, with what's called easy believism. That you can pray the prayer, you can sign the card, and that you can live however you want because you've accepted Jesus as Savior. Maybe later on in your life you can make Him Lord. I think it was that one track, The Four Spiritual Laws. I think that was the name of it. Like it'll show, like upon your, your first conversion, it'll have a circle and it'll have a throne there. And it'll have you on the throne and it'll have a cross outside the circle. That you, you've embraced Him as Savior. And then later on, you'll find that the, the cross is inside the circle. As you're maybe growing in faith. And then finally, He'll be on the throne when you have embraced Him as Lord. And those that really emphasize those things, don't really emphasize much as far as following the commandments of the Lord. Because we're under grace, not law. Well, there's a few things that we need to understand. One, <clears throat> is that, of course, the law saved no one. Ever. Salvation was never granted by obedience to the law. The law was the expression of the holiness of God that God demands from all people. The law can only condemn you. There is no salvific element when it comes to the law of God. The law is good. But Paul, add, Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's the law that gives sin its power. Because the law reveals you to be a sinner before God. And where you see the law, sin is increased when you come to understand the law of God. Which is again the expression of the holiness of God. So no one was ever saved by the, by the obedience to the law. Everyone was always saved from the very beginning by grace through faith. Always. That never changed. But it was doing the works of the law that it was a means that the people of God could express their adoration and express their commitment to Him. Not that they can keep it perfectly, but when you look at the law, and if you just take the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and you look at those specifically, these are things that you know are pleasing to the Lord. So that when you come to faith and you desire to please God or you desire to show the, the commitment to the Lord or your love to the Lord, what is it that you do? You go back and you do the things that you know are pleasing to Him that are written in the law. Again, not to gain your salvation, but because of your salvation. You carry out the things that God said is good. To show your love for Him. This is a means, an, an opportunity for you to show your love to the one who died for you. By obeying the things that he is said to do. And that is not an unjust request on his part to demand those things of you. And in fact, when you go back from the very beginning and you begin to look all through the Old Testament especially, the Lord always announces something that he's done for that person before he gives them a law to follow or a command to follow. 
You know, that's what he did to Abraham. I'm the Lord that called you out of the land of the Chaldeans. What does he say thereafter? I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. What does he say thereafter? When he brings the people of God out of, out of Egypt. I am the Lord who brought you out of the iron furnace. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. The ground of our obedience is, is, is grounded in everything that he has accomplished on behalf of sinners. And so this is what he has done. And the therefore part is you do this to show your love and your adoration and your commitment for him. And as Jesus says here, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John says in 1 John chapter 2, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one that says he has come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It is a demonstration of our faith to walk in obedience to the Lord and to delight in doing so. It shouldn't be a burdensome thing. It should be in light of everything that you have done for me and, and things that I, I can't even fathom the things that the Lord has done. In light of the things that have been revealed to me of what you have done, let me live a life that is pleasing to you. That should be the attitude of the people of God. Not to do it because, well, the Lord requires this of me and so I've got to check off everything that I need to do. As John Piper had, had pointed out, <clears throat> That if he, if he were to come home and he had flowers and he had some candy or whatever, he was to knock on the door and his wife answered the door and he gives them to his wife. And, and she says, oh, thank you, John. Why did you do that? Because it's my duty. Is that really showing love to his spouse? No, that's probably going to end up hurting her feelings. Because it's done out of duty, not out of love. But if he were to say to her after she asked him, why did you do this? Because I love you. I'm showing you by actions that I love you. And this is no different than when it comes to the people of God. Showing the Lord your love by walking in obedience to Him. And by the way, when it comes to the, the issue of conversion, and it comes to the issue of embracing Jesus as Savior and Lord, that's nonsense. When you convert and you embrace Him, you are embracing Him as Lord. That is the name that is given to him that is above every name. It's not Savior. It's Lord. Which is the equivalent of the Old Testament Adonai, the Sovereign, the Master. If we truly love him, then we need to be keeping his commandments. Praying in his name, showing love to others, living at peace with all men if, we, if, if possible, as he says, bearing one another's burdens. Declaring the gospel to the lost, living out the gospel in our lives, manifesting the truth of our profession, growing in sanctification, on and on and on we go of the things that are written within the scripture. Because these things are pleasing to the Lord and these things we ought to be doing. And the question is, do you love him enough to do that? To deny yourself and to follow him. To deny your own desires and to let your desires be the Lord's desires and to pray for those desires. To manifest the glory and the majesty of the Son by revealing Him to the lost. Do you love Him that much? Do you seek to please Him that much? Do you have that desire? These are things that we need to be thinking about because we have the privilege, as He says there, of doing greater works that are grounded within His redemptive work. Not anything supernatural. And that's the amazing part. But just declaring what He did, who He is, and walking in obedience in light of all those things. How often do you pray? Do you pray once and then give up? Do you give up before you even ask? We have a tendency to do that too. Well, I'm sure the Lord ain't going to grant this, but I'm going to ask. So I can say that I asked. What is your prayer life like? Because if you really desire to do the works of the Lord and to manifest His greatness and His goodness before a world, you can't do it apart from prayer. One of the common denominators of some of the greats that 
the Lord has used all through history is that they were people of prayer. Praying in the good, praying in the bad times, whatever it was, but praying that the glory of God would be manifested in their life. What is your prayer life like? We need to be people of prayer in order that we can be used by the Lord to the fullest extent in order to manifest His goodness and His majesty to the world. If we, ha- if we aren't doing those things, then we need to begin doing those things. Prayer is a time not for you just to request things of the Lord, but time for you to, to commune with the Lord, to fellowship with the Lord. A lot of times prayer changes you rather than being granted whatever it is that you've been asking. Prayer is vital to the Christian life. And prayer should be as natural to the believer as one theologian said is breathing. Communing with the Holy God who loved you enough to send His only Son to carry out all that you couldn't do, to endure His wrath and to satisfy His justice and to be resurrected from the dead to demonstrate that He has the power to grant to you eternal life. That should move us to desire even more to glorify His name. If not, go back and begin praying again for the Lord to help change you and overcome whatever it is that's keeping you from doing that. Because this is a great purpose that we have in this life that we need to be carrying out. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you once again for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the great encouragement that it is to us knowing that you are still all about glorifying your Father and we have the privilege of being used by you to accomplish those things. It's an amazing, it's amazing reality to consider that the God who speaks creation into existence and upholds it by the word of his power uses mere creatures to manifest his glory. Thank you so much for that wonderful privilege be used by you oh father help us to overcome our things in our life that hinder us that we can by the strength of the spirit of god overcome them to move past them and to do what we know to be right to show you how much that we love you and to set aside that necessary time in order to pray to commune with you and to pray for those things that you delight in Father, help us to be a people of God that that you're pleased with and manifest your goodness. Thank you again for all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And may we glorify you in all things, Holy Father. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen.